This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Welcome to another episode of the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Bowers, and I am joined today with my other host, Luke Oswald, and also the esteemed guest, Ken Asmus. Ken Asmus is the owner of Oikos Tree Crops, and he is a man who I have wanted to visit and never had the opportunity to do so for a very long time. Ken, explain who you are and what you're all about to our audience, please. Okay, well, most people know me from my nursery, which is, you know, Oikos Tree Crops, and I started that in the early 1980s after I got out of college. And it was kind of an, an extension of my family's Christmas tree farms in the Saginaw area of Michigan. And uh, it was from there that I bought a small piece of property and created a farm, a nursery. And for the last uh, 40 years plus, uh, I sold trees and so forth through that. And it was kind of a exploration of wild plants and things that probably many of your listeners are familiar with too. So I enjoyed just the fact that um, I could find and cultivate certain wild plants. And it was kind of goes along with the, at that time, the wild edible. So I had all these books on edible wild plants. That was my, my thing in high school. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. Um, and I began to cultivate a lot of different types of uh, of these um, wild plants. And some of them are here in Michigan. And it turns out it's a bigger community than just um, Michigan too. It's throughout the United States and even the world where people collect and use and harness uh, food plants that are essentially 
growing un untended and in the wild. And that was my whole uh, forte, I guess. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. I never knew that you actually had a uh, background in wild edible plants. I, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But I always thought of you as more of like a, a tinkerer, like you, you, you tinker with um, like domesticated plants. And then I know you do have um, wild plants. And I know from some of my friends, that you, you go out and explore and, and gather cuttings and seeds from the wild. But uh, I didn't know that you had that background. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to. Um, one of the fun things to do was to take some of these books with me. I put them in my backpack and I would find some place to go that I was alone. And I would try to, you know, you know, make meals out of things that I could find or process in some way. And I would sometimes I take some of my friends with me too, or my brother or something. And not everyone liked that those excursions because there was no food. We would just yeah. take our bags. <laughs> and then you know they go, man, I don't like cattails that much, you know. So, but um, you know, it was kind of fun to do. It was an enjoyable experience. So. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't. It wasn't something that you know I was struggling through. It would only be a few days, sometime up to a week, and then, and then I would go home. So, <laughs> oh, that sounds pretty cool. So you were doing like a survivor thing before survivor. Yeah, it was kind of a survive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe I would take um, some uh, like brewer's yeast or something, you know, with some B vitamins and uh, and uh, some water purification tablets and. Um, I don't know. I think I took, I took as much, little as possible, but also I wanted to, you know, just explore um, certain areas. The one place that I used to go a lot was up near Mackinac City, called French Farm Lake, and that lake had no at the time had no cottages on it. I think there was one cottage on the back end of it, and I used to go there. It was state land, and it was kind of like the overflow for Wilderness State Park. And mm -hmm. I could go there and I learned about it from my parents when I was real young because we used to go up there all the time. So I would go there, camp for a few days or a week or so, and um, use that as kind of my uh, place to stay for a while alone. So I oh, enjoyed wow, okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. French Farm Lake is um, really, really up there. Um, and yeah. uh, the, that whole area is very beautiful, um, but it's also very yeah. sandy, sandy. So I'm surprised you would find yeah. a lot of wild edibles there. Um, yeah. now, I, uh, I really want to dig into the meat of this here. So you, okay. you have, you've been cultivating and growing some extraordinarily cool crops for, um, a really long time. And one of those yeah. crops that, um, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm sure you are too, is Apios Americana or the groundnut. Right. And, um, so groundnut though, um, in the wild food world, that's, uh, you know, so I, I teach foraging and, uh, -huh. uh Groundnut has kind of a bad reputation for making people vomit. Now, um, really? the, the interesting thing about that, though, is that most people I know that are like doing what you do, Ken, are uh, cultivating it. They've never heard of that. But but like uh, for, foragers, uh, many foragers, like perhaps uh, the people estimate up to 10 percent um, will vomit from eating um, Apios Americano. So wow, this, I didn't know that. When you guys say Apios Americano, are you talking like... Uh, um, like the mouse peas type thing or what, what, uh, what kind of ground, well, nut? What? ground nut be, being like, uh, like the, a hog the, peanut the, type. What are they? No, it's, it's related to hog peanuts, but not. Hog peanut. Yeah. Um, so, so tubers that, uh, they yeah. they grow, they grow in a little chain. Luke. 
Okay. Um, underground. And, they, and they, they grow underground. They grow in a little chain um, and they grow in wetland environments. Typically um, you're going to find them like the first time I ever found them was along the Manistee river in Northern Michigan. Huh. Um, but uh, yeah. So you never heard about the puking thing, huh? Ken? Oh, no, no. I'd heard. <laughs> no, no. I'm thinking back about how many thousands of packets of those I sent out. Um, I think uh, hopefully I didn't make too many people sick. Mm -hmm. But no, that the um, the one thing I I've always noticed about this they had a latex. You know, when mm -hmm. you cut into them, there was a certain latex, and I thought, boy, I wonder if that's of should be a concern. You know, anyone with the latex but, um, allergy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it was a white milky <laughs> substance that would exude out of the skin when you'd cut into those tubers. And um, during the time that I had the collection of them, I used um, another scientist's uh, research from Louisiana, Dr. Blockmom. He's still alive, I guess. And he developed these varieties that were very large. But because mm -hmm. they're the southern portion of the plant, they really didn't grow as large here in Michigan. Mm. And so, but they were still a very good varietal selection. And uh, so I I had um, those and then I started developing more of them and people started sending me seeds and cuttings of various types. And from there, I kind of made a little repository of those. And um, I still have some of them, but um the one thing was about them is how nutritious they were. Very high in protein. Mm. Uh, you know, it's the protein that doesn't run away, I guess you could say. And uh, it's very um, easy to uh, use. And it was quite digestible for everyone that I've ever served it to. We had it at the farm a few times. Um, we'd stir fry it or add it in with other uh, root crops to eat. But I, I'm not familiar with the sickness part of it. I don't know. Is that now? Did you, did you peel those, or did you just eat the skin and all when you were cooking those? Um, oh, I, I've never had the uh, the vomiting happen to me. So um, yeah, I, I, okay. I want to be I want to be clear that it is only a cer <laughs> uh, certain people yeah. that, that tend to have this. Um, and hmm. apparently, apparently, once it happens to them, uh, those people will like forever kind of have like uh, puking experiences when they eat it. Oh, um, wow. But I, but I just found that fascinating when I had heard that. And I didn't know if you had heard about um, that before, because um, I'm sure you know, um, ground nut was so widespread in the north and um, it doesn't make seeds up here. Oh, it doesn't. Huh. No, it doesn't huh. ever make. No. Yeah, it doesn't make seeds up here. So any any time you find ground nut in the wild in Michigan, that is a. Um, that is a wild selection that's been there for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's interesting. No, I'm, I was not, I knew that it had been widely distributed and that um, people, the, the tubers actually store quite well. So you could take a whole raft of them if you dug them out of a lake or if you carried them with you. Often they were, they're found on the edges of wetlands. So you can imagine like digging up a whole bunch of them and just throwing them into a canoe or whatever and just leaving them there exposed to the air. They're not going to rot. They mm -hmm. last for a long, long time. And the other the other aspect of it was I'd heard 
early on that people with peanut allergies had issues with groundnuts. But hmm. I didn't know if there was any scientific information on that. At the time, I couldn't find anything. So that 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 particular type of tuber, along with the Jerusalem artichoke, which was another one that I worked on quite a bit, that that one, you know, has digestibility issues as well. So yeah. I I would tell people, okay, well, this is, you know, this is a varietal selection, but it still may have some digestive problems. You should eat small amounts at first to see how it um you know, complements your digestive <laughs> issues, so or not. <laughs> um, speaking of Jerusalem artichoke, so do you? Yeah. Um, do you ever have an issue? I, so recently, the DNR released a statement basically saying that uh, Michigan is completely overrun with deer, and God help uh -huh. us all. And um, <laughs> that sounds your, like your an farm, easy problem. <laughs> <laughs> so your farm is in, your your farm is in southern Michigan. Um, yeah, I I know for a fact up here in Traverse City area, all of the um, all of the patches that I know of that are in places where hunting is not allowed, all of yeah. the all of the Jerusalem artichoke gets eaten to the ground, uh, right? By by deer. So, uh, yeah. have you ever had a problem with with uh, that experience on your property? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, you know, I had those cultivated near my barn, so. We used um, just repellents to control hmm. them. But as soon as I closed the farm, the nursery, between the deer and the groundhogs, you know, that pretty much wiped it off. There was also a, um, there's a vole that thrives on those uh, tubers. And oh. what they do is they catch them in little, um, oh, they're maybe a size of a volleyball grouping. And they'll dig them up and they'll move them into a little, little underground cavern-like and um, and that's kind of how sunchokes are moved. Um, hmm. So that's, you know, that's why you don't see large patches of them very often. Or if you do, they're along the roadside um, where they might be. That area is uh, um, may be a little more free of deer and uh, possibly and maybe not have the vole issues. Um, you still find a lot of sunchokes here in Michigan along the roadsides, so it doesn't eliminate them entirely. But all of my sunchoke plantings that I moved out of the nursery into my the remaining areas of my property are gone. They're mm. just gone. And so one of my employees came <laughs> visited this summer, and he goes, "What happened to all your sunchokes?" And I go, "Well, the deer ate them." He goes, "That's not possible." I go, "Oh yeah, it is." <laughs> Yeah. But they will really, they browse on that foliage. They love that foliage. Yeah. Well. And uh, so <laughs> the only the only thing I could do was I would buy deer off. I'd go to Menards and I was buying these big gallons of deer off and just lacing those things almost weekly. And if it just, if I started early enough, the deer off worked. Um, but now I have electric fence. So, hmm. you know, I'm cheating a little bit. But that's that's the only way to do it in any extent. Well, so. <laughs> I could come and help you with that anytime you want, Ken. I'll be more yeah, than happy to eradicate <laughs> as many as you want. <laughs> well, my farm my farm is actually close to a lot of homes and stuff. So, um, but there are people that hunt in the area. But you could never shoot enough deer to eat. I think they I think they actually spot that foliage and go for it. It's so quickly. Even wow. very early in the spring, 
Yeah, they must smell it or something. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, Luke, now that you say that, Ken's probably halfway between us two. So, um, Ken, I, I live in Traverse City, but Luke lives in Illinois. And uh, so we could just meet in the middle and come and uh, take care of your <laughs> problem <Radicate>. for you. <laughs> no, All right. Um, no. Um, Groundhogs, but, too. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Groundhogs are delicious, actually. Have you ever eaten one, Ken? No, ne never had a groundhog, no. Oh, well, it tastes good. <laughs> well, I imagine, yeah. They're very hard to skin. Um, so, uh, beside those tubers, um, what other, what other kind of interesting plantings do you have going on? And, um, I wanted to ask you about, um, how you relate this to like getting along in the future of the world, you know, like what, what sorts of things should we be planting as people who want to be stewards for the earth? Well, the one, the one thing I've. I noticed when I left school back in 1979 was there is, you know, there's, there's agriculture, there's horticulture, and then there's, you know, there's the wild or there's conservation and there's nothing in between. And um, I've always wondered, you know, are there other types of plants that you could um, also grow untended? Um but still provide some sort of nutrition and health benefits from it, uh, even if it was a small amount. Mm -hmm. And so when I was doing that, um, frequently I would take my family on vacations and I would see, see and meet people that were collecting wild fruits and vegetables of various types. And then having the nursery, people would send me pictures of things they were collecting or using that I was not even aware of. And mm. uh, like like different types of gooseberries, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, man, this is really quite a, a broader subject than what I thought it would be. And so I think part of it was what drove me to kind of look for this was to take common cultivated plants like the potato and make a wild version of it that could be grown untended in a wide, in an untended setting, in a wild setting. And this is kind of, actually kind of, I guess, kind of controversial because you're taking a plant that has been with humans for thousands of years, but now you're saying, well, we can, we can grow it in our garden, but we could also grow it in the forest. Hmm. Uh, and it wasn't that hard of a, of a, um, a journey for me to create that. And so now that I've been, experimenting with these feral what would we call a feral uh potato or a feral piece of corn or feral apple or whatever and um it, it is possible that we could grow these types of crops uh, untended in um public lands or open land if we wanted to um but it's so um there's so many um other people that would not want that or they feel that that part of the world should remain separate. So in other words, an orchard's an orchard. It should remain in the orchard. It should not have the, the apple should not have the ability to escape into the wild. Mm. And what I'm saying is I, I want the apple to escape. I want the plant to um, go untended for for a couple of reasons one is so untended we can see what the apple really is 
and harness the genetics and the varieties from a wild apple and put that into our diet. Because as you know, from your experiences with uh, wild foods, wild foods are tastier, they're mm. healthier, and um, it's not, you can't buy it at the store. You cannot buy woodchuck at the store. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's probably a reason for that. I don't know what it is, but any plant or animal you can um, cultivate and use in a beneficial way for your own health. And uh, I did that with, with plants. That was my, that was my forte. That was my, my thing. So um, going back to the potato, the potato, you know, that's how the potato used to grow. It, it was a wild plant. It grew on, in the Andes, in the mountains, and then it was transported by humans. And mm -hmm. in that process, the fertility of it was left out. So there was no way for it to reproduce from seed. And mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first thing that happened, male sterility. And then the second thing was it couldn't, um, couldn't really compete with other vegetation. So I had to kind of look at the plant from the standpoint of how competitive is this plant? I need to create a competitive potato. And uh, so <laughs> it's, wow. it's funny, but it's true. And then the other aspect of it is a fertile potato, one that produces fruit. Mm. And so I, and, and I was fortunate to be able to do that. And same with all these other things that we eat every day that are already cultivated in the store. And I, I want to make a wild version of them. Uh, whether it's a wild orange, which I'm working on now, or whether it is a um, just a, a wild form of apple, a cultivated, uh, uncultivated apple. So that's, I don't know, I just find that interesting. And the the benefits of it are, would be quite enormous for, for people, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that you're, you're onto something there with those things. Um, do you, don't you think though that um, Michigan's native crab apples uh, suffice for the wild apples you're trying to get, or do you mean that you want um, like an apple the size of like a cultivated apple to go wild? No, the yeah, the native, the native apples. I I grew many of those for a while. I still have some at the farm. Um, I I found there was even in those. That that's actually a very good question because it's question raises kind of arises is should you even bother with that because <laughs> mm. you got these hard green apples that are as hard as nails and uh, almost impossible to consume without <laughs> getting sick and um, I remember collecting a whole bunch of those and making some jelly out of them and I'm serious you could bounce a bowling ball off that jelly it was just so <laughs> hard nothing it was just insane and it was so strong no one wanted to eat it but i think that the idea is then you can how can you harness um that fruit without really going to any breeding sort of thing so that in itself is of great value okay, but I got considering the considering the hybrid apples or the hybrid the crossing of apples there are many places in the, in the world where apples are small and they they can grow on their own and they're quite delicious just like they are. And mm. it doesn't have to be such a heavily sprayed crop, one that involves so many insecticides and pesticides. So finding a wild apple kind of eliminates, you really want to eliminate all the problems with apple growing in the process. And it could be a smaller apple, it could be a larger apple, it wouldn't matter as long as it's an apple. 
<laughs> and one that you know that is edible to some extent <laughs> yeah and um apples i think are good for humans good for animals um it, as, as far as in in my experience um and, and what i try to accomplish in my life is i want to make the earth a better place for um not only humans but for animals as well so i like to right. think about that um so up here, for instance, in the Grand Traverse Commons, I have been planting for a number of years uh, wild plums, uh, American plums, you know, Canada plums. I've been planting yeah. um, just all kinds of things that I think will down the line will be this amazing resource. Um, and then, you know, also selfishly, I teach foraging classes there all the time. So I want to be able to showcase that stuff. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, Luke, do you ha have you ever had the experience of uh, going out and finding plants and then trying to bring them back to your house, like uh, Ken and I are talking about? I have. You're very you're very quiet in this yep. podcast. Yep. So I just want to get you. Um, yeah, no, I have uh, a couple different things. Not only for myself, but I have a friend that has a nursery. Uh, well, we all know him, right? Jed Arkles. Uh, Oh yeah, Jed. So yeah. yeah, so Jed has some stuff that I've gotten from him before that I've planted. Um, I don't know if it's actually come up. Uh, I did plant some Jerusalem artichoke that has come up, but I'm letting it kind of spread out and establish itself a little more before I really dig into it and start harvesting. Um, I do have foals and and gophers and stuff that I do I think take some of it. Um, mm -hmm. I've tried transplanting ramps and also planted ramp seeds, so I won't know the result of that for a few more years. Oh, yeah. Um, I do have a native wild onion patch that has been growing on its own. Um, I don't know the actual variety of the species, but it is the white, like the square bladed, like almost like grass blades of onion. Um, those are oh. growing. Allium canadensi? Sure, yeah. That's that's what I said, Capitilla. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, I've got some of that stuff. Um, choke cherry, or not choke cherries, um, Cornelian cherries, uh, you know, so stuff like that. Yeah. Now, Ken, uh, uh, you, you are... <laughs> The list goes on. I mean, I planted a lot of stuff on my property. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Luke, you're going to be blown away when you uh, actually look up and see what uh, Ken's property looks like. Uh, he's got uh, everything. I mean, I think you're being a little modest with your plantings. Uh, you're talking about like what you grow because uh, I've heard that you have like just this insane ecosystem of oaks and persimmons and hazelnuts everywhere. I planted persimmons as as too. I forgot about those. I don't know if those actually <laughs> took or not. I've done hazelnuts, chestnuts. An American Excellent. Chinese hybrid, um, so hopefully it'll be blight resistant. Um, yeah. I've done hazelnuts, uh, apple trees, pears, peaches, stuff like that. I actually want to do some, um, find some wild apples or something. I actually, um, yeah. a friend from another podcast had some wild, some feral apples that were really good in taste that somebody shipped to him. And I said, just save the seeds for me. I don't care what they are, even if they don't. Obviously, they're not going to turn out to be that apple, but I want to plant those, right. those wild seeds and grow pips from that. So, yeah, I've got a lot of stuff that I've done on my own property as well. 
um, hmm. to try and grow different things. Figs don't do very well, as you said. They die off, but then I get a bunch of new growth on them every year. Deer have eaten my chestnut trees, and then they've actually came back, or uh, raccoons mm-hmm. have dug them up and tried to eat them, and they still actually, I replanted them, and those actually grew. It took a whole year before something sprouted up and took out of the ground, but this year was a drought, so it was kind of tough to see what actually took. Um, I didn't yeah. do a lot of watering. I believe that it should be able to make it on its own. Um, but yeah, I've, I've planted a lot of stuff. I'm really hoping my pawpaws take off. And I've got a whole bunch more s- seeds that I'm going to plant in about another month or so and put some mulch over them and see what happens. Nice. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Sounds so, great. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want my now, own food forest. Oh, aronia berries too. Yeah. Aronia. Yeah. Oh, man. See now, there's there's a wild fruit that you bite into that and you go, okay, I'm out. I'm tapping out on this. This is not. <laughs> this is not possible. It takes about five minutes for your mouth to come back. You know, it's like, oh, geez. how could anyone survive? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. So um, the ero- the aronia berries in the in the wild that I've collected, I've always used just for juice. And I'm right, sure, right. I'm sure yeah. you've, you've done the same thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my, yeah. My my father's farm had um, actually it was my family's farm. It was a partner. My dad and his uh, partner from the post office bought a piece of property. It was 140 acre wetland, and um, that's what we first started growing Christmas trees on. And this wetland had a lot of aronia. And I could mm. never understand it until many years later when I started growing it and then eating it and realizing the value of that is just the, the amount of, of anthocyanins or whatever the coloration is in that fruit. And a lot of people really uh, tout the health benefits of it. And we we had several, I had several discussions with people who say it was like their coffee in the morning, you know, um, because it was just so powerful. Uh, waking them up you know it's just they really loved it and uh, but the um, cultivated aronias there's so many kinds of those now uh, people are growing those in a commercial setting as a as a orchard crop too so mm. you can you can find it in some sports drinks uh, oh have aronia. aronia yeah mm-hmm. yep nice uh my my favorite name for that is uh choke berry yeah uh, yeah sometimes people call it that and then and then you'll go uh choke cherry like, no choke berry berry <laughs> right <laughs> um so you you cross the line a lot of times uh in in some people's minds with um planting things that are non-natives um i this is a touchy subject for a lot of people and huh. i would love to hear your take on the natives versus um non-natives debate and um just feel free to like uh, say as many controversial things as you want well it's really not that controversial because i i talk about integration biology or integration ecology and this is the new direction ecology will be taking if it hasn't already because we realize that some of these control programs that we've initiated for plants and animals don't work and it's become extreme in in a lot of ways. So, you know, you can argue about it if you'd like, I guess. But um, as a nursery person, I always followed the regulatory 
aspects of that because, you know, couldn't grow this or send this to this state. And so, you know, that part of it is just part of the nature of uh, growing things that at some point in time, it'll become, you know, not uh, possible to grow or sell. But at the same time, in that same <laughs> uh genre, I guess you could say, you know, like like with Automolive, you have people using it more and more and finding out the health benefits of the plant. So at some point there'll probably be cultivated orchards of it. Um, but for now it's just for people who like to forage and to to harvest fruit and enjoy the flavors of that fruit, despite it being technically illegal to grow, you could probably still uh, use it and enjoy it, but um, not everyone would wish you well <laughs> in yeah. the process. Uh, and then the other aspect of it becomes, well, you know, geez, who's in charge of of this um, new agriculture that's coming out of the um, agroforestry crowds? Who's going to be making decisions on what we grow for food, what we grow for timber, what we grow for all these different things. Is it the native only things? Because if it is, then that philosophy has never existed since the dawn of man, where we frequently would give each other seeds and plants of things far, far away. And these got transmitted by humans, because that's what we needed to live and survive on. And this goes from everything from corn to to apples to gooseberries. What? The African gourd. Yeah, the you gourds. You know, whether it floated, I mean, floated over here and they found it on the coast of Florida and took it and planted it, or, or if it was actually transported here. But uh, either way, that's a prime example of one that non-native found the seeds planted them cultivated them and holy cow it grew <laughs> grew great yeah that's very interesting i'm not familiar with that a lot of the cactus here in michigan and of course a lot of the ground nuts were carried as we just mentioned were carried by people and cactus in particular because of all the um you know as a society you can imagine a society where you're hunting and and living off the land how many cuts and scrapes you'd have in a single day and the cactus is the poultice that you want and you want to have cactus wherever you go there's no doubt that they carried cactus pads with them wherever they went people would have to do that that would just be a must and i wouldn't be surprised that early man was really a repository of seeds and plants carried with them to you know a just in case scenario because um, the Polynesians did this when they moved. They carried the wild plants and they carried the cultivated plants with them. And this is um, this is the normal thing that we've done. All of human evolution is involves. Uh, we're tied with the resources that we are currently living with, and if we're going to move somewhere, we're going to bring those resources with us. So now you have it's a little different situation where. You ask yourself, okay, we can't, um, we're not going to be planting things for wildlife. We're going to be planting things for ourselves. And um, how are we going to expand this? Um, I guess you could say this this new palette of plants. Um, I 
can we how can we expand that um because we're going to have to yeah um i i definitely agree with almost everything you said there i i think that uh it's silly and uh, honestly you, you know like there's so many examples that we can look through the lens of history and see that like um you know we often associate beech and hemlock and we say beech and hemlock they grow together and they're like plant companions and um but when we look at the fossil record and we look at the the seed bank we see that um that wasn't always the case and that association has only been together for roughly 4000 years and so the question remain like for us now is do we say okay that um that's a non-native mixture or is that the is that a native mixture you know what is it and how long does it take for something to become a native and for your example of the autumn olives um i love this one you know people like uh we've got a conservation district up here uh that loves spraying autumn olives and they love doing it on their land and uh, i always laugh because they'll have this property in particular that i know of gets sprayed continuously all the autumn olive, um, but then all of their surrounding land around it is covered with autumn olive. So guess what happens every time? Yeah. <laughs> it, gets, it just gets it reseeded. Comes back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the whole the whole thing is like just silly ancient thinking, in my opinion. Or yeah, actually not, not not even ancient. It's like it's like no. new new thinking in sort of a way. Like we we went crazy carrying plants everywhere. And I think that there are repercussions in some cases, but I think that overall, what we're seeing is like the original expansion of a, of a new plant. And then eventually it does reach an equilibrium. Like, yeah, it uh, yeah, it'll correct. Yeah. Everything corrects itself. That's what, yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of how long. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Same thing yeah, with like matter. what we talked about on the last podcast, Clay, the same thing, right? Invasive. How long it, does it have to be on the landscape before it is invasive? You know, I mean, that kind of what you said but it just it brings that question you know does it 10 years 20 years like you know is there a cap on it i mean finally we accept the dandelion as a somewhat native uh plant and most people still ostracize it and consider it a complete nuisance but it's definitely got its benefits yeah did you uh actually luke i hate to burst your bubble but um <laughs> I, th I, I think dandelion uh, Taraxicum officinale is now regarded as a, a a a native, not an honorary native, but just always been here. And mm. we thought that it we thought that it wasn't. That they brought it. Actually, it with, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. First, so, my wow. bubble. Yeah. I don't care, Clay. You're not going to yeah, offend so, me. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, dand dandelion. I'm not a child. I can take it. <laughs> Well, you know, the list the list of those is pretty is pretty extensive. Um, there's there's many plants that. European people came here, they yeah. saw on the landscape, and then they said, "Oh, we brought this here," because because they had this idea in their head that the plants couldn't exist in two places at once. So there's what we call the circumpolar natives, like yarrow is native to both Eurasia and North America. Um, hops are native to both those continents. Yeah, um, all that stuff. So yeah, I. I think that's cool. I, I'm in agreement with you, Ken. I just wanted to hear you say it, basically, about the um, the invasive species thing. Well, it's a very complex subject, because if you think about it, it's not just the invasive species plants, but then the methods that we're using to get rid of them. Mm. 
And I don't support any of those methods. No. And so, or the organizations that do it. So, and I told them that. And I've, if they've asked, most of them don't ask. But <laughs> I have also, I've also spoken out against it. And I write about it now against it way more than I used to than when I had my nursery. Um, and I think part of it is it, it just, um, you know, I every now and then I get something in my inbox about you know, some management program that's just pathetic and it costs too much money. It doesn't do anything. And I could complain about it for years, all these things, and it doesn't do any good. So the other the other aspect of it is to just show the the positive side of these same plants in a way that um, connects the people to the plants in some way. Well, you know, now I I did write a small thing on autumn olive the, how that got started as a food plant and people mm -hmm. do don't realize but it was a nursery person that accidentally found these high lycopene uh, compounds in um, some syrup he was making and sent it off to the usda to have it analyzed and of course at this same time while that was going on the the um, movement to not only stop selling it within the conservation districts, which is one thing, but the other part of it was to get rid of it and put it into the Invasive Species Act, which then allows money to be spent to, for its removal. So that creates a kind of a two-tiered thing with that. And meanwhile, the autumn olive here in Michigan, there's a great diversity of it. And people did, I did, was contacted by people that were making selections or breeding it but uh, now you'd probably have to get a special permit to do that, I suppose. But the idea then becomes, well, who has to pay the price for that? And the taxpayers have to pay the price. And then the, you know, you have the the um, idea that it's bad, but then you have all these animals that consume the fruit and live on it. And, you know, you, you go, boy, there seems to be a lot going on. And then the flowers and the, all the different pollinators that use the flowers and, you know, but Meanwhile, it's become the poster child of of the like the dandelion is for herbicides. And, you know, you have this thing where you create a removal program. Um, but, you know, a lot of people just don't follow that and they just enjoy uh, foraging in Michigan. And maybe they collect autumn olive berries. Maybe they collect gooseberries. Wild gooseberries are another plant that was on the banned list for a long time. And it, they're native gooseberries. It's not like they're not native. It's just mm -hmm. have, they have a disease issue that prevented their uh, use throughout uh, Michigan because of the white pine industry. Yeah. And when they and when they started researching that a little more, they found out that really probably wasn't those gooseberries specifically, and uh, the ones that we thought were resistant are not. And there's several other factors that contribute to white pine blister rust. So yeah. now that's kind of in a limbo area, but that's one plant that um, people don't know about is the gooseberries here in Michigan. There's actually quite a few of them, and I have one at my farm that I, I just love. It's called the um, Missouri gooseberry, and mm -hmm. it has um, very big thorns. It's quite a thorny little dude, and it was an accidental thing underneath my power lines. And um, and I was like, man, this is this is kind of cool. I'd never heard of this type of gooseberry. And I started growing it and selling it in places I could. There, I couldn't sell it. There's a hodgepodge of counties that would allow it. And uh, one one woman in particular grew and sold, and she would get 
gallons, buckets filled with this. She just loved them. And, um, hmm. and I think, you know, I was like, well, that turned out way better for you than me. <laughs> but I think, and this happened a lot. And I think part of it was people would cultivate these much more intensely and grow them like a fruit bush or a tree and then benefit from the gooseberries, which are very high in vitamin C and all sorts of other stuff. And uh, so I was like, man, that's, that's amazing. You know, and I, I still try to grow wintergreen and I still try to grow wild ginger and many of the native plants. Um, the one, one plant that was very popular before I closed the nursery was Solomon seal. There were several mm. people. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever harvested Solomon seal or used Solomon seal at all? Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, uh, Solomon seal, like, true solomon seal not not false not solomon false seal. right i hate that yeah, but, by the way i'm just gonna throw yeah, that out there calling things false something just give it another <laughs> name it's, it's such a terrible yeah but anyway go on yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, fall, or, uh true solomon seal is or, or as i jokingly sometimes do call in my classes uh correct solomon seal <laughs> it's correct <laughs> yeah. yeah correct Correct Solomon Seal has the tastiest spring shoots if you can find them. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're well, really, really good. They are. There's there's different forms of them. There's actually quite a bit of different variations in the wild of them. And mm. I found one that was um that I thought was a little bit better in that it was more vigorous. And then a woman sent me a picture of some of the stuff that she had huge bunches of it. And she goes, Oh, we eat this stuff like asparagus. You know, we just love it. And I was like, good God, I still have those pictures. It's like a picture of her face, her head, and then this giant bouquet of, of Solomon seal. And uh, she, you know, they would steam it. And I think maybe they drained the water once or something. And she, they just loved it. You know, it is a very good uh, wild um, woodland plant. So mm -hmm. um, I think the deer nibble on those a little bit too, but in general, they they'd left leave those alone. Another one that was very popular was wild ginger, and there's quite a bit of genetic variation in the American ginger plant as far as the size of the of the root, but more importantly, how it branched. And I found one variety that was super branchy or twiggy, mm -hmm. and uh, had very high yields. And some of the foraging groups were very hot on that because they said. You know, you can make a really delicious gingery flavor with this plant that still is safe to eat as well, because there was some concern about its toxicity for a while. And they kind of uh, revamped that a little bit and did more updated research and said, no, it's fine to consume. You don't have to worry about uh, illness or poisoning yourself or anything like that. So, As, as far as I've ever heard, um, wild ginger has, uh, what is it called? Um, as Acerum canadense has uh, acerone, correct? I think that's the yeah. So yeah. acerone, as far as I was always aware, is um, not water soluble. So if you make a tea, then you're safe and you're good to go. But yeah, I've I've always been under the impression that eating wild ginger was actually not a safe thing to do in any uh, substantial amounts. So yeah. I don't uh, I don't know um, if that's what you'd heard as well, but that's what I had always been told. I think I think that's part of it. Yes, but you know, even with eating it, you would have to eat a vast amount of them or consume the leaves. The leaves are really high in it, and okay. I have heard of yeah, I have heard of people going to the hospital uh, 
after eating a leaf or two of it. Um, so that's no good. Don't do that. I nibble yeah. on the roots, but that's about as bad <laughs> oh, as I, yeah, I do. I'll nibble on the roots and eat one or two. I've never yeah. had any issues. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, I, I remember um, first time ever seeing real wild ginger in Michigan and just being so excited about it. Um, oh, my yeah. God, I found Oh, my God, I found it. And now, um, you know, I know that it's just a very commonplace southern Michigan plant. It's everywhere yeah, around so, here. So, so, yeah. so I, I was really excited. Now I see it. And I'm like, yeah, this is well, yeah, everywhere. You could go out right now and find it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, but it does not, in fact, grow where I live. So, oh, really? yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not really um, in its native range up up oh. here in northern northern Michigan. Um, oh. But yeah. So what other what other kind of cool plants um, do you think that people should grow? Uh, I mean, especially like uh, this is a hunting podcast, and I and I really think that uh, it would be cool to give some recommendations for things that would be valuable for wildlife. So, like if if me or Luke wanted to set up a chestnuts yeah uh, yeah chestnuts yeah of course but uh i want to hear some, i want to hear some of the uh the other wacky unknown ones that ken's got on his list here like wh- what kind toe. of plants should <laughs> yeah how wacky um yeah i don't know i tell i tell you what the there's every year it's it's insane the i i grew a lot of persimmons i surrounded mm-hmm. i surrounded my farm with persimmon trees and what i did is um Kind of got the idea from another farmer that had um, Norway spruce surrounding mm-hmm. his farm, and they were just so majestic. And they're spaced just on the inside of his property line, spaced maybe ten feet apart or less. And so I did that with persimmons, and I had no one row that's about fourteen hundred feet long, <laughs> and another couple other rows about four hundred feet, and then I worked my way back another couple hundred feet or more back to the same where I started. And those were spaced at maybe five to ten feet apart. And I because persimmons are either male or female, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know what would happen, but it, it turned out that it was about 50% male and female, roughly. Mm-hmm. And the fruit quality of those on most of them was just off the charts uh, for <laughs> me to eat and especially the deer. So mm. I knew that the deer liked them and we had a hard time collecting them. But what really, I, I still haven't um, got an image of this, but I put cameras out there and I could see a lot of deer activity. But what happened was we got a snowstorm that was just maybe an inch or two. And what I realized was deer from all over were coming to my farm and it was insane and i am not talking a couple of hoof prints i'm talking like herds and i was shocked right right across my neighbor's yard who by the way is a big hunter it must have drove nuts and it was just they would go right into the edge there and just feed on those persimmons and i was i was just shocked at how uh the deer were were uh, eating those and they would even get in fights so my camera was picking up deer behavior that i've never seen before either Mm -hmm. they stand on their hoofs and then box each other yeah and uh, i'd never seen that (laughs) and i you know i'd see all sorts of other stuff you know people you know they would come into a certain area eat and they would have certain spacings 
and then they'd move on and then the bucks would come in and and they would eat and they'd have certain spacings and um i i just found that uh you know i've always thought of it as a high energy crop because it has a lot of sugar 30 percent and because we're i'm in southern michigan it really is the northern part of its range here and uh, i collected and got seed purchased seed from a lot of growers over the years and i stuck with those northern seed strains and that that turned out very good that was a good idea the, mm -hmm. the, going from seed you can also direct seed them they're very easy to direct seed and it's relatively cheap it's a the seed is inexpensive usually um, if you buy it online or even my nursery. I charge a little bit more for it just because of the processing time involved to make the seed good. But it's it really is a a, a good uh, fruit for for animals for wildlife. I'd say in southern Michigan, I can't think of anything. Uh, there's so many other things that are eating it. There's raccoons, there's squirrels up there. There's all these birds, these songbirds, they all love persimmons. It's just insane. And the other one is wild pears. I created oh. a wild pear orchard. And these these ripened earlier. Most of them ripened earlier, but some hang in the trees very late and bled. And the bledding uh, creates these sugars. And then the, you have cedar wax wings in huge numbers at my farm. Uh, big flocks of cedar wax wing coming in and feeding on these pears. And um, then the pear seeds themselves are also consumed. So you have other animals eating the seeds. And, uh, you know, for a while, I thought, geez, I wonder if any of this stuff is spreading over to my neighbor's property. You know, it's becoming like an invasive species. So yeah. I thought, well, I'll go look. And only once did I find persimmons growing in an, on some of my property. But it, they grew by underground runners. Uh, not mm. by seeds, but the other properties are surprisingly devoid of my trees. Um, so I don't know what the deal is, but on my farm, there's all sorts of stuff coming up now. So I really don't have to plant trees anymore. I just uh, maybe will protect certain trees that are spreading. I have a lot of hickories um, mm. and pecans. The shellbark hickory was probably one of the best uh, nut nut trees I've ever grown at the farm. Um, those those I really liked, and they grew fast, vig very vigorous, and large nuts. Yeah, I think that's probably my most favorite nut tree. So. Yeah, uh, shell bark hickories are great. Have you ever had one, Luke? I don't know. <laughs> uh, the the very first time I actually uh, I had a shell bark hickory was I was driving in southern Michigan, and I was going to visit another farm that perhaps you've heard of, and it's called Magic Land Farms. And it's in Fremont, Michigan. And um, they grow northern pecans there. And um, I I look along the side of the road as I'm leaving, and the entire uh, hedgerow of their property is all shell bark hickory. And there's nuts just laying in the middle of the dirt road. So I got out and I picked like a, a gallon. Uh, but yeah, best best hickory nuts I've ever had. Ooh. Super easy to crack. They um, are, yeah. They've got a, a lot thicker shell um, than... <laughs> than the um bitter nut i mean for instance yeah for sure but but um so persimmons you said they're, they're not spreading now um why why is that uh you think that they're not spreading because um for instance uh where where luke lives you're probably still like not in a, like a real persimmon zone but um around you 
they are, you know, like there are wild. You talking to me or, or yeah, yeah, I'm talking. I'm talking to you, Luke. Yeah, they're further they're, south. Further yeah, south further is like a real persimmon zone. Uh, a little okay. bit west of me, I think they kind of start too. Um, yeah, kind of weird how that happens, but, but yeah, yeah, but but huh. the point the the point is is that they do spread in the wild. So it's kind of interesting, Ken, that your land has tons and tons of persimmons, but they're not spreading. Not by seed. And I was digging around into the um, manure of some of the animals that I find there just to see what the quality of the seed was. And if the seed passes through a deer, it doesn't survive. Mm. Um, People have told me that they'll eat the seeds or spit them out. Mm. And um, I can't be sure about that, but I think they're swallowing them whole. and. you know, not really fussing with chewing them too much. And I think, (laughs) but when the seeds come out, they're black. They don't, they're totally shot. The embryos destroyed by their enzymes in their stomach. And um, so it can't be deer, but it could be, um, it could be that some other animal might carry this, the fruit somewhere, like a squirrel or something. But in general, the persimmon will uh, sprout and grow as a clone, just like pawpaw will. Hmm. But it's not always, um, it's an individual tree trait. It's not found very often, actually, at least in my uh, tree plantings. There are some that spread and some that most of them don't. So it's not real a heavy thing. But on one hillside, my neighbor who loves to hunt, the big hunting guy, he um, he has a lot of persimmons on his property now. From my, they came, but he hasn't cut them down yet. So I'm like, well, that's good. He knows. Why. But there was another, there was another neighbor who was a little upset about him. He told me, and I was like, well, I don't care if you cut them down; they're on your property. So he did <laughs> cut them down. And now he's mowing real heavy in that area. But oh. you know, meanwhile, he can look out his. I know it's. Meanwhile, <laughs> he can look out his back window and just see herds of deer. He I don't know if that burning, not mowing. Him. Yeah, I know. Oh. I know. But, <laughs> but the um, yeah, that that actually is a, you know, it's in the ebony family. So there's yeah. there's a tree on Kalamazoo Co- uh, College's campus that's just massive. It's maybe it's got to be at least two foot across or more. And um, but up on the tag, it says black gum. Now, I don't want to be a snooty plant guy, but it's not black gum. It's persimmon. But a lot of times these are misidentified here in Michigan, black gum and persimmon, because the bark can be similar uh, in many ways. But the structure of the tree is totally different of persimmon versus the structure. You can tell the structure of a black gum tree. Um, black gum, by the way, does have delicious fruit. It tastes <laughs> like lime. It's hard to collect, but yeah. it's very delicious. It's very good. People make uh, pies out of them. Really? Um, I can see why. They're, they are very good. But anyway, the, the the idea of the persimmon growing here in Michigan, that just seems hard for people to comprehend. So I started bringing a lot of folks out to my farm and um, having them collect persimmons and take them back with them. And that that's a lot of fun. I love doing that. So you guys got to come to my farm. Okay. To collect persimmons <laughs> is, well. is that a higher success rate planting the whole fruit 
Uh, or is that a lower success rate than taking the the seeds and cleaning them and stratifying them and then planting them? I, I would be concerned that the fruit would ferment uh, and destroy the embryo and the seed. That seems to be a common problem with persimmon seed. Um, hmm. People will put them in a bucket and they'll start to ferment and they don't realize that alcohol is quite toxic to the seed and it will permeate the seed coat. So it almost begs to, you know, get rid of that. But I think if you were to smash them, smash the seed in the thing and, you know, just rough it up a little bit and plant the whole fruit, I think it would be fine. Okay. You know, as, as long as it didn't build up in a bucket where the <laughs> Is it turns into this giant mass of really stenchy, whiny thing. And people do make wine yeah. out of it, too. <laughs> I've had people come to the farm. I go, here, t-. one guy in particular was making wine. But it would go from really good wine to really horrible wine <laughs> uh, very, very quickly. They, and so for a while, it was known, like, they go, how was, your, how was Gary's wine this year? And they go, it was really good. Oh, that's good. And then next year, oh, this wine was bad, man. That was a bad persimmon wine. If it's bad wine, it you went. just distill it. Just distill yeah, it. Yeah, well, it's very difficult. And that's one of the things. I, yeah, I don't know what he was doing. But I think <laughs> I think part of it was the fact that persimmon is kind of a tricky fruit to mess with because of the tannins in the fruit. And that's a lot of that's the other aspect of it is people go, oh, I bit into one of those fruits before and I couldn't whistle for three weeks, you know, because my mouth was all just puckered up. And I go, well, that's just normal. You know, that's you. You ate it too soon. You have to have this mushy kind of very ripe over almost overripe fruit. So you have to educate people about that. So, yeah. Um, well, Ken. <laughs> I'm sure uh, I I would love to come down and check out your farm and uh, perhaps, Got you. perhaps sometime uh, me and Luke can come together and um, just, yeah, just check everything out. That'd be really cool. Uh, we are always looking for ways to figure out how to get together and make some fun podcast uh, content in, in real life. But I oh, would yeah, love that'd to, be cool. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, very good. Yeah, um, but I would love to have people like uh, know how to get a hold of you, figure out like uh, your social media accounts, all that stuff. And um, tell people just uh, any last things that you want to say before we wrap this podcast up. Well, um, if you go to my website, there's a, there's a contact form there. So you can just fill that out and uh, we can talk on the phone. We can set an appointment at my farm. If you want to visit sometime, um, probably Usually, I have a lot of visitors starting in August, September, mm -hmm. um, but some people are curious to know how to make certain tree plantings and so forth, and uh, they'll come during the summer even. Um, so it's it's fine. And the other aspect of it is uh, Instagram. I have an account there where I take pictures of my farm and different trees and so forth, Oikos Tree Crops. Uh, mm -hmm. You'll see my name there, Ken Asmus, Oikos Tree Crops and Instagram. And people like that. I'll comment on different things that I'll photograph during the day when I'm at work. So that's, that's kind of it. And then I sell my seeds. Um, you know, I try to make some of the better selections available in quantities usually. Uh, some some people use, um, have a need for seeds still. So I'm still doing that. So That's, that's awesome. And that's all at oikostreecrops.com? That's correct. Yes. 
All right, cool. Yeah. Um, and I just did want to mention one last thing. We've got a planting up here um, called the Edible Trails Project that my oh, yeah. late, my late friend, uh, Jonathan Aylward, um, right. started. And uh, I we just had the very first year where all of the um, the goose plums made plums. So I can Ace. thank you. I can thank you for uh excellent. I, I think I think supplying those trees or at least the seeds or something. Oh yeah, that. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, but, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah that was were, quite a journey with that plum. Yeah. Oh, great. Great. <laughs> but um really, really appreciate you coming on to talk about this stuff. And hopefully some people yeah. will get a will get a hold of you to um just get more involved with planting because I think um I'll harp on this forever, but uh foraging and hunting is uh missing a component if you're not actively engaging in planting and making the world a better place. Yeah. That's true. You want to leave it absolutely leave it leave it better than when you when you got there. I want the majority yeah. of my property at some point to be a passive edible landscape. So that's perfect. Yeah. That's that's we share the same goal. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well thank you so much Ken and uh I hope thank you, you Luke. Have, uh, thank you Clay. Yep. Yeah. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.